This is Mark 16, 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Well, happy Easter. Good to see you today. Um, This is a Sunday every year where we uh, celebrate and focus in on the heart of the Christian faith. And the heart of the Christian faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about his death and resurrection. And the gospel begins with what we read here, with the reporting of specific historical events, that Jesus died on a cross, that he was buried in a tomb, and that he physically, bodily rose again from the dead, and that he was seen by hundreds of people as the resurrected Lord. That's what we celebrate today. And make no mistake about it, the Christian faith is unique in this regard. Uh, No other religious faith starts by saying, above all, you must believe that these historical events happened. For other religions, for other ways of life, the main message goes something like, live this way or pursue this path and you will find God. Christianity, on the other hand, opens not with, here's how you have to live or here's what you must do, but with, here's what Jesus did for you in history. I wonder if that's how you understand the Christian faith, no matter where you are this morning spiritually. It's common today to think that Christianity is primarily a way of life, that it's primarily a list of commandments, but it's none of those things primarily. It's primarily based on news about something that happened, that changes everything in our world and that has the power right now to transform your life. So I want to look at the resurrection of Jesus with you today, briefly from this account from Mark's gospel. But first, we have to take ourselves back. We have to go in reverse to to Friday. If you really need, if you really want to understand Easter Sunday, you've got to get the context. Jesus has just died in a ghastly, grisly, 
painful way. That's what Mark 15 is about. And Jesus is buried in a tomb owned by this man, Joseph of Arimathea. You read about that in the end of chapter. And significantly, every single one of Jesus' followers, all of his disciples are scattered and shattered and forlorn and hopeless. Hopeless. It's difficult for us to place ourselves emotionally and spiritually in their shoes. Everything for them had been lost, you see. Everything felt broken for the disciples on Friday and on Saturday and early into Sunday morning. Nicholas Wolterstorff is a uh, Christian philosopher and author who has, uh, a number of years ago, lost his adult son in a, in a tragic uh, accident. And uh, he wrote a book-length reflection on his grief. And the book is called Lament for a Son. Lament for a Son. And it's heavy, just fair warning here. It's one of the more powerful descriptions of grief that I've ever read. And in one passage, he, he's talking about how it feels when your world has been shattered. But it's been a little while and the rest of the world who felt so sorry for you and brought you meals, etc., has sort of moved on with their lives, but you're still feeling just as painfully the loss that you've endured. He writes this, quote, I walked into a store. The ordinariness of what I saw repelled me. People putting onions into baskets, squeezing melons, hoisting gallons of milk, clerks ringing up sales. How are you today? Have a good day now. How could anybody be going about their ordinary business when these were no longer ordinary times? I went to my office and along the way saw the secretaries at their desks and the students all in their seats and the teachers all at the podiums. Do you not know that he slipped and fell and that we sealed him in a box and covered it with dirt and that he can't get out? That's the headspace. That's the heart space that the disciples of Jesus are in. Jesus was gone. It was all for naught. All is lost. But then Mary Magdalene and the other women approach the tomb at sunrise on Sunday and find something there that they could have never dreamed up. Mark arranges his story in such a way that he attempts to engage you, the reader, you right now, with the news about what happened on Easter morning. And the story is compact and sudden, and it ends really abruptly, as you, as you might have noticed. And, and throughout Mark, and in this text as well, God is asking us to consider the message of the resurrection. Particularly if we find ourselves in a position of dullness or in a position of doubt this morning. So let's see how the news about the resurrection addresses us and I want to speak to three particular groups today, which I think will make up just about all of us. To the guilty, or the skeptics, the guilty, and the overly familiar. So let's think about the resurrection first as it speaks to the skeptics. One of the things I love about Mark's record of the resurrection is that the entire story bears the marks of surprise. No one expects what happens here. These women, in verse 1, are going to anoint what they think is a dead body to pay homage to their fallen master. And they have no expectation of life, only of death. 
They're alarmed, we read in verse 5. They're astonished, we see in verse 8, when they see and when they hear what has happened. And Mark records the shock and the surprise here because Mark knew that the natural instinct of people who hear a story like this is skepticism. Three women come and say, a dead man rose to life again. And the natural response people are going to give to that is, yeah, right. (laughs) That doesn't just happen. People don't get up and walk out of a grave three days after they were murdered. In our age, we tend to be guilty of what my friend C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery chronological snobbery. That is, we think that the people that were originally reading these gospel stories were more gullible and naive than we modern, sophisticated, scientific people are, and therefore less likely to be skeptical of this story. And and that's what explains their belief in the resurrection and the rise of the Christian faith. They were pre-modern, pre-scientific people, so they were more easily duped. That's just not true. It's not the case. The initial response, the original readers and hearers of the resurrection of Jesus was the same as many of our initial responses. No way. They're skeptical. We know that to be the case. One of Jesus' closest friends, one of the 12, a man named Thomas, when he heard about the resurrection, said, yeah, right, I don't believe it. Show me proof. It's Thomas the scientist. Thomas the skeptic. He wanted evidence. They had no category for anything like this, just like most of us have no category for anything like this. And Mark is aware. Mark is aware of the skepticism most people will feel when they hear about what happened on Easter Sunday. So what does he do? He doesn't hide the fact that the people who first discovered that the tomb was empty were shocked. They were just as shocked as we would have been. That's why Mark and the other scripture writers go to great lengths to show us that there were many, many eyewitnesses to these events. Mark is addressing the skeptics in part with his story. He's saying, listen, I know you find this incredible, but all these people saw and experienced this. And if you don't believe it, at least to the original audience, he's saying you can go ask them. That's why all of these proper names are used at the end of the story. Notice that these three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Salome, they're mentioned three times in just a few verses. In chapter 15, verse 40, they're there at the death of Jesus, all three of them. They're also there, verse 47 of chapter 15, at the burial of Jesus And in 16.1, they're the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Mark is telling us these women saw it all. They saw him die. They saw him buried. They saw that he was not in the tomb any longer. And their testimony corroborates. And there's a lot more. Other parts of the New Testament tell us that hundreds of people, hundreds of saw the resurrected Jesus in all different types of circumstances and situations. Listen to the New Testament scholar Peter Williams as he puts it in his book, Can We Trust the Gospels? He writes, quote, 
The resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in town and countryside, indoors and outdoors, in the morning and the evening, by prior appointment and without prior appointment, close and distant, on a hill and by a lake, to groups of men and groups of women, to individuals and groups of up to 500, sitting, standing, walking, eating, and always talking. Many are explicitly close-up encounters involving conversations. It's hard to imagine this pattern of appearances recorded in the Gospels and early Christian letters without there having been multiple individuals who claim to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. There's a lot more that can be said. I could preach a 10-sermon series on this exact point, but the point stands. If we're going to be intellectually honest, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is one of the best attested events in all of history. And I can continue to give you argument after argument, but I've been doing this long enough to know how you people work. No argument can force or compel anyone to believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Any one of you, and some of you have, can come back to me and say, listen, I haven't got a better explanation for the events of this Sunday morning or for the rise of Christianity, but I know that dead people don't come to life, so there's got to be a better explanation even if I don't know what it is. I can't force belief on you, but I can challenge your unbelief. I can pull a Darth Vader. I find your lack of faith disturbing. And that's just what Mark is doing here. When he gives testimony about all the people who witnessed the resurrection of Christ, if you're a skeptic, let me just challenge you with this question. Can you allow the history to challenge your natural bent towards skepticism? Or are you so fixed in your stance that no amount of evidence will be allowed to change your mind? And if so, do you approach other things in your life that way? Christianity is not blind faith, my friend, not a leap into the dark. It is reasonable. It is evidenced. It is well attested. And so at least grant me this. Either Jesus is who he said he was, and the resurrection is a historical event, or he was a complete lunatic. But don't tell me, and don't go on believing that you respect Jesus, and you agree with a lot of his teaching, even though you don't buy the literal physical resurrection. You don't really have that option. Mark also addresses the guilty. To the skeptics, first. To the guilty, second. He's certainly telling us about the facts, isn't he? The facts of the resurrection, but the gospel authors are doing more. They're also interested in our understanding the meaning. The meaning of the resurrection. The angel who appears at the empty tomb, he he tells these three women, you heard it read, to to go report the news to Jesus' disciples and to tell them that Jesus will see them in Galilee, which is exactly what Jesus had said would happen back in chapter 14. And in the middle of this order from the angel, we learn that this story is not just about bare facts. It's about the character of God. It's about the grace of God. 
The message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ fundamentally highlights the love of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus. How so? Well, if you know the story, uh, remember what the disciples, Jesus' friends, have done. If you came to our Good Friday service, you heard the narrative read. On Friday, the day Jesus died, every single one of them bailed on him. They saved their own skin. They tucked their tails and fled. And even before they abandoned Jesus on Friday, they've never really recognized Jesus for who he is. They're distinctly human in their faithlessness and brokenness. They've been hard-hearted. They've been slow to understand. They've been short in mercy and compassion, much like me. They've been jealous, envious, even malicious at times. They've been arrogant and ambitious. And look at who is specifically named by the angel. Verse 7. Go, tell his disciples and Peter. Why single Peter out? Well, Peter's the ringleader, the spokesman of the disciples throughout all four gospels. And not coincidentally, Peter is also the one who has had the most monumental screw-up. He had told Jesus with a lot of braggadocio, I will be with you to the end. I will never leave you nor forsake you, said Peter. But hours later, Peter had denied Jesus, even to the point of cursing God's name in a fit of rage acting like he had never met the man to a little servant girl in the courtyard at night. And the end of Mark 14 ends by saying that after his failure, Peter had broken down and wept in shame and in guilt. Now, fast forward and imagine Peter on Sunday, still covered in shame. Have you ever felt like that? Just sick sick over what you've done. And guilt coursing through him every time he thinks about it. Every time he remembers the way the words left his mouth and the, and the tone of his rage. And he's off in a corner alone in the upper room hiding from the authorities in despair along with the other disciples. And then these three women burst in the door and they announce with astonishment, we couldn't find Jesus. The tomb is empty. And more than that, this massive angel who looked like a flash of lightning. I haven't ever seen a flash of lightning close up, but I think it would be scary. It would be astonishing. The angel looked like a flash of lightning. He appeared and he told me, Jesus is alive. Let's go to Galilee and meet him. Imagine what Peter's thinking. What? Jesus? Jesus is alive? Jesus has been raised from the dead? And the other disciples, they certainly would have started asking questions of the ladies as they all try to come to terms with the news. And so they decide to go to Galilee to meet him. And Peter who was never shy, let's be honest, undoubtedly would have spoken up and said, hey, did he say anything about me? Did I come up at all? (laughs) And, And he's likely thinking, there's no way I'm going to Galilee. I am done with this. This is not for me anymore. I can't show my face again. I'm too far gone. He say, no, he asked for you. He called you by name, specifically. 
And we know that Jesus asked for Peter not to condemn Peter, not to rub his face in his guilt. He asked for Peter so that he can restore him, so that he can forgive him. Jesus wants Peter, and Jesus wants all of the disciples, and Jesus this morning wants you to know that his love for you is independent of your response of love to him. The love of God does not coordinate with our love for him. He wants Peter to hear that because he has overcome death, he has also overcome guilt. Peter's guilt and our guilt. The resurrection means that grace, undeserved favor, abounds to the guilty, to the faithless, to those who, like Peter, have denied Jesus time and time again despite his friendship to us. I read this story this week about a young girl named Christina who lived in a very poor Brazilian neighborhood. And she was discontent with her home, which had only a pallet on the floor for her to sleep on and a wash basin and a wood-burning stove. And she dreamed of a better life in the city. And one evening, she got into a big fight with her mom, Maria. And uh, in the morning, she woke up early and she slipped away, breaking her mom's heart. And knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young daughter, who was an attractive young lady, Maria packed up her bags and went to go find her. And on her way to the bus stop into Rio de Janeiro, she entered a drugstore to get one more thing. What she got were pictures. She sat in the photograph booth, remember those? (laughs) Photograph booth and closed the curtain, and she spent all the money she had taking pictures of herself. And, and she filled her purse with these small black and white photos, got on the next bus, and went to Rio. And Maria knew that her daughter, Christina, had no way of earning money. And she also knew that her daughter was, was too stubborn to give up. And when pride and hunger meet, a human will do things that beforehand were unthinkable. And so Maria began to search bars and hotels and nightclubs and any place with a reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. And she went to them all. And at every place she went, she left her picture taped on a bathroom mirror or tacked to a community bulletin board or fastened on the corner of a phone booth. And on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. And it wasn't too long before the money that she had was spent and the pictures had run out. And so she went back home weary and tired, to her small village. And a few weeks later, uh, the young Christina descended stairs in a hotel, and she was tired, and, and her brown eyes didn't have the same vibrancy or youth that they once did. Her laughter was broken. What she thought was going to happen in her life had not happened at all. And a thousand times over, she wished that she could go back from the countless bed she slept in now to her little pallet. Yet the little village was in too many ways too far away. And so she reaches the bottom of the stairs and her eyes kind of picked up a familiar face. And she looked again. And there in the hotel lobby was a little picture of her mom. And Christina's eyes started burning and her throat kind of tightened. And she walked across the room and she took the photo and turned it over and looked at what was written on the back. Her mom had said, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, 
I forgive you. Please come home. And she did. That's exactly what Jesus is saying to Peter. Whatever you've done, however bad you think it is, I forgive you. Your failures are not the defining moment of your story. Jesus says, I have loving plans for you still. I died and I was raised to secure your forgiveness. That's how much I love you. Trust in my death. Trust in my life. What a message. What news for those of us who are guilty. For those of us who have totally blown it. The resurrection assures you, no matter what your past failures or regrets are, that no matter the depth and breadth of your sin, there is mercy to be found with God. Mercy for you. And this is not the way the world works. The world says, I know how religion works. You live up to a standard and do some favors. That is religion. But that's not the story of Easter, and that is not the Christian faith. The gospel says, God favors you. God loves you. God takes your guilt and pays it off himself. God is gracious to the undeserving. Like Peter, like me, like every single one of you. He only asks for your trust, for you to go back home and fall into his new life in complete reliance. Lastly, The resurrection story speaks to the overly familiar. Look at verse (laughs) 8. Such a crazy ending. The story just, boom, ends. Trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone and were afraid. Mark drops his pen and says, I think that's a good place to stop. Um, What's going on here? None of us would have ended the story like this. As one commentator says, this is no way to run a resurrection. Um, Mark's communicating, I think, to those of us who have lost all sense of astonishment with God and with the resurrection of Jesus. I think that might be some of you. If you've uh, been around church for a while, thank you, by the way, for being around church. But one of the hazards of being around church for a while is that you get used to this story. You even might get bored with this story. As Andrew read it, you might have not even been really listening because you've heard it so many times. And so the Holy Spirit through Mark wants to say that when you really encounter the fact of the resurrected Jesus, there's really not any space for a lukewarm response. There's no space for being overly familiar with the most important and unique event in all of human history. Some of you know my dog, Miles. Miles is a 95-pound golden doodle. And uh, Miles has never been accused of being overly familiar with me or anyone else in my family. Because even though he knows us and we meet all of his needs and he costs us a ton of money, every time we come to the door, he is going to bark his head off, wag his tail, and yes, because we're terrible dog parents, jump on us. When we walk in the door, it doesn't matter if I went to check the mail for 15 seconds. When I walk back in the door, I get clobbered by this massive beast He's never lukewarm in his response. Side note, if you have to get a dog, it'll make you feel better. When you walk in the door, someone won't ignore you. Um, A true, I won't say that in the next service when my kids are here. Uh, A true grasp of the resurrection brings wonder. It, It brings astonishment. 
In the resurrection, God is bringing the future world into the present through one person, Jesus. God is declaring a revolution, a victory against the powers and the forces of this fallen order. The resurrection changes things. It changes everything. It's a radical story. It's a story that should evoke devotion. It can't be received as ho-hum and ordinary and mundane. Marilyn Robinson in her novel Home says... It's possible to know the great truths without feeling the truth of them. Some of you know the truth. My goodness. You know it better than I do. But you don't feel it. You don't feel the truth of it. You don't realize that this is a world-shattering moment that sets all who believe it on an entirely new trajectory. So let the resurrection challenge you, my friends. You can reject it. You can frame your entire life around it, but you can't treat it indifferently. Is the resurrection overly familiar to you? Why did you show up today? And I'm really glad you're here. But you're going to go have Easter lunch. Hopefully it'll be lovely. Maybe do a little egg hunt. Sounds great. I'm all for all that stuff. But God calls us to center ourselves on this reality. To live every moment as if Christ is risen. Sarah Heppola is an author, and she wrote a book uh, called Blackout, which is uh, about her struggle with alcoholism. And um, she tells her story in the book of finally coming to terms with her desperate need to get help. And uh, at one point, she writes this. One June morning, exactly two years ago, I woke up near dawn and understood that if I kept drinking, I would not get the things I wanted most in life. I knew that I could keep drinking for the rest of my life, and though I might not die physically, I feared dying inside. This was an epiphany, but it was an epiphany with legs, she writes. That night, I talked to my mom about my drinking. Once you go public with your mom, there's no walking it back, which is probably why I did it. I wanted to firebomb my routes and secret hideaways. I wanted to narrow my options down to one path. Jesus has firebombed all of our escape routes with his resurrection. He is not waiting for you to meet him halfway either. He has come all the way. And because of that, you cannot escape him. You can choose to live life like he's not risen. But if he is truly the source of life and you don't go in with him, You'll die inside and out. Thank him that he's bombed your escape hatch, that there's no turning around, that Christ has shoved in every single one of our faces, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, and in time and space, that he has triumphed over death and that his resurrection changes the universe and changes everything about your life, if you'll believe it. Christ is risen. Let's pray.